0: It's Wednesday, November 10th, 2021, and this is KBIA's Views of the News. Our weekly roundtable on media behaviors comes to you from the studio in the Reynolds Journalism Institute. I'm Amy Simons, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Kathy Kiley and Ernest Perry. On our program this week, fresh data from the Pew Research Center that offers some interesting insight into how and where Americans are getting their news. The only English language newspaper in Ukraine has shut down and the staff was fired Monday. What happened there? And a little closer to home, a local newspaper is reborn, thanks to student journalists at the University of Georgia and someone, some of you listening at home might know. There's a lot more that we're hopefully going to get to before our half hour is up today, but first, Aaron Rodgers he set out Sunday's game because they're both laughing on either side of me right now Kathy and Ernest both he set out Sunday's game because he has COVID and now we all know that it's still possible to catch the virus after vaccination so the fact that he said he had it means it's still possible he could get it right had the vaccination he could mm-hmm. still get COVID But he didn't get the vaccination. That idea that he had been immunized didn't really mean what most people thought it would have meant. He lied, and Ernest. In that process, he also has broken several league rules. It's now costing the Green Bay Packers a lot of money.
1: Well, it's, yeah, it's costing it's costing them money. It's costing the league's reputation in terms of how they have dealt with this, and and it it brings back that the old problem that they've had for a very long time, which is we treat our stars differently than we treat. Uh, the other players in the league and and this is a a huge case of that and you're talking about Aaron Rodgers who has a uh, who already has a reputation of being sideways with fellow players being sideways with the Packers ownership and the league and now this happens so you know it's 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 to me it's one of those things where if the NFL had followed the protocols that it had set up and agreed to with the Players Association, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. Uh, But they didn't do that. They allowed him to basically walk around uh, the facilities Mm -hmm. unmasked to have press conferences with the media unmasked when the protocols clearly stated that if you have not been vaccinated, you should not be doing these things.
0: So this goes beyond the whole idea of, you know, the boneheaded jock who makes some bad decisions. His influence really muddies the waters even further in an area where there's already a lot of disinformation.
2: Yeah, I think some of the pieces you've put on the links blog point that out that, um, you know, Aaron Rodgers is a celebrity and celebrities uh, we've we've talked about some other celebrities who um, are really um, helping to spread disinformation at a time of a public health crisis. So I think um, that I, I think that is, you know, that that compounds uh, the problem that Ernest was talking about that you uh, it, it is of the fact if um if Aaron Rodgers were the second-string punter, mm-hmm. I really don't think uh, he would have been able to get away with this. And so the, the, it's undemocratic, and, um, and, and then, in addition, for the very thing that made him able to get away with it, his celebrity is uh, making him really a, a vector for a virus that's just as bad as COVID, and that is disinformation. You know
1: the thing that bothers me about that—the point that you just made—is that when someone of his stature basically says, "I'm I'm going to follow this science and not this science," as if they're experts science. in science, uh, that creates. The, the problem of allowing misinformation and disinformation to fester because they have some sort of prominence in people's minds, mm-hmm. despite the fact that they have no knowledge whatsoever of how any of this science works.
0: And the sources he was going to to get his information or to speak to the publics, we're talking about the Joe Rogan podcast. We're talking about right. other other media outlets where he's speaking to an audience that we already know is not listening to the science. Joe Rogan himself contracting COVID and you know speaking the joys of ivermectin, of which there aren't any if you don't have if you're not a horse and you don't have parasites. Don't take ivermectin. That's just my PSA for the moment. Um, How did journalists go about fact-checking it, though? We're back at this point, and and should they even need to, right? He made these comments about how he was concerned about what the effect would be on his infertility, or fertility or infertility. Again, the science is showing that that's not going to be an issue. Journalists are, again, spinning their wheels, but because of his celebrity having to, to, to... correct the misinformation that's out there.
1: I mean, I think at this point all the journalists can do is point those, continue to point those things out. We're in, you know, we live in a society, especially a a media society in which people have the ability to be able to go into their their own media environment and echo chambers and stay there Mm -hmm. and not really engage with what what is actually fact? Uh, they have their own set of facts. They're going to believe their own set of facts, and that's what they're going to do. What what journalists should be thinking about is there are people who are really truly out there trying to find information about about what's going on, so that they can make decisions for them and their families. And those are the ones that 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 we're speaking to when we continue to combat this misinformation and disinformation. Yeah. Well,
2: all I can say is. Aaron Rodgers' statement on uh, on his medical prowess had landed him on the lead skit of Saturday Night Live, not on the stage of the Nobel Prize recipient. So well, let's keep that in mind. Um. Yeah.
0: I had used the words boneheaded jock very intentionally a few minutes ago, in part because of one of the pieces that's on our links blog that was written by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, really taking shots at him for what he's also done here to the reputation of athletes as well and the idea that athletes perhaps aren't necessarily seen as smart enough to make good decisions and he's ruined their reputations as a whole too.
1: Well, I mean, I think that there's, Maybe a little bit of truth to that, but I, you know, I think that in in the in the era of athletes building their own brands, mm-hmm. you have other athletes who are basically coming out and saying, "Wait a minute, that's Aaron Rodgers. That's not me. That's not that's not all of us." And I think that that's what's what's going on right now is that you know they're basically saying, "Look, we're going to put our voices behind the science and and what the facts are, and not." go down this path of believing in all of these you know basically conspiracy theories or or, or all yeah. the other disinformation what a journalist
2: could do is ask aaron Rodgers' teammates and his opponents all the people he's been breathing on um how they feel about it i mean i'm sure there are a lot of athletes who are really disturbed about this the other thing i think that's important to really emphasize here is no matter what Rodgers says he believes he knew all along he was acting in bad faith Mm -hmm. because he lied. You know, he said, I'm immunized, which was a deliberate deception. And then he went, and as you pointed out, Ernest, he flouted all of the NFL rules. If you really believe that the vaccine is bad for you, okay, man up and put the mask on and do do what the league wants you to do. But instead, he was duplicitous about it. And I think that's a sign of bad faith. And if I were his teammate, who he was breathing on, I'd be furious. I might think about suing.
1: I mean, I think, you know, one other point to make here is that what is the league gonna do? Uh, the we fine saw what, they issued was right, we, pathetic. Right, I mean, the, the, the problem I have with this is that you had an opportunity with concussions to do something you didn't, and you paid a heavy price for it. Now you're at another moment where you're having to deal with an issue a, a huge issue, a public society issue, and you have an opportunity to do it. If the if the shield, as they called it, is the most important thing, then you need to protect the shield, and protecting the shield is to deal with this head on. There should be huge fines and there should be suspensions.
0: Okay, I wanna talk about something that happened during a hearing involved, involving legislative staffers and a video that they apparently edited from a committee hearing in the Kansas Senate. There was this hearing of the Special Committee on Government Overreach and the Impact of COVID-19 Mandates. It's a long name for a committee. Uh, It was all (laughs) over Halloween weekend and that meeting was recorded and posted on YouTube. Here you're going to hear an excerpt from the meeting and you're gonna first hear the voice of a Lawrence, Kansas man. He's talking specifically about a guy named Sherman Smith. He is the editor of the nonprofit news site, The Kansas Reflector. You're going to notice there's some times when the audio appears to drop out. I'll explain why in a second. That's who we're up against. We're up against a bunch of weaklings, people who are soft, and Sherman Smith. I want to rem- remind everybody that we will be respectful in spite of our passionate views. We will not tolerate that type of language or behavior. So between that silence and the rebuke from Senator Renee Erickson, there was about 35 seconds of silence. During that time, the speaker went on a profanity-laced tirade attacking a journalist and the legislative aides made an edit to the video, silencing his words before posting the five and a half hour video to YouTube. Now, this one leaves me with all kinds of feelings. I get what the staffers were trying to do. they were trying to protect the journalist who didn't deserve that
2: attack, but
0: they were also altering the video, which is a public record. And that is a problem.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you were going to protect the journalist, take the journalist's name out. You know, so it was kind of a half-baked effort. But even
0: if they take the name out, isn't it
2: just as No, and I I agree with you. I mean, I think... uh, So I'm saying I don't think that... My guess is that was not the motive. Okay. Uh, but, But I do think that when you alter the public record, um, you're going down a slippery slope. Um, and I think there's an easy way to handle that. You can put a trigger warning up there. You can. Um, we do this all the time in the news business. This is disturbing. You may not want to listen to it if you've had certain kinds of experience or if you have kids around. Um, but they could have done it in many different ways. What this does is it actually um, whitewashes um, it's something that the public probably needs to know about, which is, I mean, I think it's an important thing for us as members of the public to talk about and think about how our civil society is being dismantled by this just epidemic of incivility and uh, name calling and uh, toxic uh, browbeating. It's it's just, it's, it's really incredible. So I think, you know, my view is, uh, let it all hang out there, and if people don't want to watch it, give them a warning, but tell people what's going on in, in their public sphere.
1: I, I would agree with you. I think it does need to be out there, but, you know, the, the kind of rhetoric that we're hearing now has is, is always been out there. And I think to a certain extent, uh, we in the media have uh, sort of been complicit in not exposing the public. To a lot of this, so the fact that people can go on YouTube and they can go uh, on on Facebook and, and and other social media platforms and hear this rhetoric and try, hopefully, we can provide some context for that so people can see it. I mean, I think that is shining the light on it.
2: Yeah, I think that I think the big thing, and I think this is the thing that we're all talking about, right? Is when we provide context for it, it really asks us to do things we haven't done before. Right, you right. know, like call somebody a liar or, or call somebody a racist. And um, this was something that came up when Maria Hinojosa was here for the Missouri uh, Honor Medals in, in a class where she was a guest. And she said, you know, why did people keep quoting Trump saying all the racist things he said about Mexicans? And on the one hand, you think, well, the public needs to know that a presidential candidate is saying those kind of things, but w- where she was coming down was saying, you need to call it out for what it is. And I think journalists are very unused to doing that, right. but that's what we're having to cope but, with. But the yeah. thing
1: about it, it's out there. Yes, and yes, if agree. we don't provide the context Somebody else and, and put it mm-hmm. into perspective, and show that this is just, it's happening now, but this has always been going on. Yeah. If we don't do that, then we do a disservice to the, to, to the larger audience, so that they can truly understand what's going on here.
0: From a freedom of information standpoint, the idea that the legislative aid went and made an edit to what's ultimately a public mm-hmm. record, is that problematic to you?
1: I think it's problematic, especially if- Because I'm thinking it, of
0: the what if, right? Yeah. If they did it here, right. where I else mean, might I, that be happening? You know,
1: I understand why they were doing it. No. I, I think it was more along the lines of, these legislative staffers didn't want that, that language out there so that younger audiences who could pull that up on on, on YouTube wouldn't, you know, and, and their parents wouldn't be offended. I, I, that's where I think they were going. And I could be wrong, but well, that's where I think so they were I going.
0: So I think that is another part of it, right, as we talk about the layers that are involved here because... The Kansas legislature, uh, by putting this on YouTube, um, they're taking this public record that is also now subject to a private company's terms of use and service. And the idea of the profanity or perhaps somebody who's testifying in this hearing, as is their right is a US citizen could be spreading again mis or disinformation talking about covid that could be seen as again a violation of what youtube is trying to do to avoid the spread of that information it puts the government agency that's trying to make further public this record puts them in a position of having to edit themselves to adhere to youtube's public that's policies true. that's true Mm -hmm. And I also kind of wonder if that's kind of a situation where our government agencies need to be thinking about how they serve their own. Like, I realize that uploading something to YouTube is cheap, right? It's real easy to do that, and it's cheap. And as a government agency that may be cash strapped or have a tight budget, you're not thinking about how do we serve the video of the meetings that we're putting out there. But to have a little bit more control to be able to preserve the... the, the archive. the archive, the originality <laughs> of that record as it was created.
2: No, it's a, it's a real dilemma, and we and we see it not only in uh, situations like this, but small uh, county or city governments uh, turning all their data over to private vendors because the private vendors do things on mass and they can cheaply uh, put things online for people. But then suddenly, the keys to your data. Are, are held by a private vendor, and the taxpayers are now being asked to pay for their data.
1: Right. And when and when that information gets out there, and somehow it's utilized in a way that causes problems for the for the governmental entity, they're the ones that are gonna get sued. So now you've got that whole legal aspect going. Are we tra- are we being transparent? Uh, yes, you are. Are we being transparent enough? Well, we're not sure. And if you aren't, then you're gonna get sued for not being transparent. So it's just, they're caught in the catch-22, especially when your budget is being cut and you just don't have the resources to do it, but you wanna be transparent. Yeah
0: so yesterday the pew research center released its freshest data on where and how americans are getting their news 84 percent of people say that they're going to digital devices at least some of the time with television as their second most popular source followed by radio and then print publications that digital device number is closer to 89 and 90 percent when we're talking about those between the ages of 18 to 49. there are a couple of other interesting uh points in this data first when we're comparing the numbers from 2020 to 2021 almost every measurement in every single category has dropped not that unusual coming out of an election year from 20 into 2021.
1: no it's not unusual um you know, the the thing I think we, we all realize, and we talk about this all the time on the show, is that uh, local news is diminishing. Uh, you have uh, fewer and fewer uh, mom-and-pop operations, I guess you would call it, or family-owned operations. It's being bought up by uh, uh, hedge funds and, 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 and venture capitalists. Uh, and then you have the big national newspapers. And, and so what's happening here is that I think people are going into other spaces to get their news and information. And even that is being sliced and diced as we've talked about on the show. So I think it's kind of hard to figure out how to, where all that is going, but people are getting their news and information. It's just how do you track where they're going to get it and what are they getting?
2: Well they're getting it, but it's 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 gonna because of all the factors that you mentioned, it's gonna be tend to be more homogenized. Mm. So instead of your local radio talk show host, it's going to be a syndicated program from Dallas or New York. And the problem is if something big happens in your community, like a tornado or a flood, uh, that person in Dallas or New York isn't gonna tell you which roads are blocked. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think people are gonna start to see the um, the value of local news. And I think the, the question is, can local news organizations, which are very strapped, to start to move into th- those channels that younger people, which is where younger people really want to get their news, and that's going to be the real challenge. I mean, one of the interesting things that's happened here uh, in Missouri is Gannett, which had been buying up and buying up all these uh, publications, recently offloaded some of their smaller papers back to local ownership. So I'm going to be really interested to see what happens there and how these younger, newer owners who are really invested in their communities Um, are able to build audience, and and what tools do they use to do that? So one of the things you mentioned
0: there too, um, a name we've talked about often in the last few months, Walter Hussman, two of his newspapers, a newspaper in both Little Rock and in Chattanooga, are trying a new approach that with a monthly subscription to the newspapers there, um, you're getting an iPad and training on how to access the content from the paper on the iPad. Taking what we're seeing here about trends in who is using digital devices versus picking up the print paper, providing that that technology
2: and the training and how to use it seems like an innovative approach. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because um, I think it kind of is in the classic mode of newspapers building community so you know you bring people into the high school gym or wherever to learn how to use the ipad and i think i don't know whether it'll work but um but i think it's an interesting innovative approach Um, hussman has been uh, experimenting with this in northwest arkansas for quite some time and he clearly thinks uh, he may have a play because he's expanding it. So I think it's a really interesting experiment.
1: I, I think it's an interesting exper- uh, experiment. The the one cautionary tale here, uh, which you can, if you read the story in our links blog, really points this out, is, uh, the, is Wi-Fi mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. whether or not people actually have Internet access. If the Biden administration's new infrastructure uh, log Works the way they want it to work, then that can that will expand internet access into many of these places where husbands paper exists. Then there might be a possibility to do it uh, for it to work. I think they're also going to have to work on not just having it on iPads, but coming up with ways in which people can be able to get that information off off their phones, because that's where a lot of people are moving more toward. How do I access information that's in that, that's in my hands? And I think that's a that's a play that that local can really go after if they can if they can sell people to move into that direction.
0: So in Georgia, there's a really neat rebirth for a community newspaper in Oglethorpe County, Georgia. And one of the people instrumental to its success? a name and a face familiar to many of us here in Columbia. Heck, he used to sit at this table as a panelist on views of the news. Charles Davis is the Dean at the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia now, where there's a team of students and faculty taking over the Oglethorpe Echo. Now, Ernest, tell me that picture of Charles beaming, doesn't that just make you smile <laughs> yeah, it there? Does make
1: me, it does make me smile. I, I mean, this is, this is a really interesting initiative because the the Grady College was approached by Oglethorpe to help them to do this when for health reasons they were decided, they were thinking about closing mm-hmm. it and uh, both uh, both Charles Davis and another good friend of mine Janice Hume who went to uh, graduate school with me uh, oh, they're, I didn't know they're, that yeah connection. they're 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 leading this yeah. sort of initiative and and the whole plan of it is to provide an opportunity for their students to be able to learn how to do journalism in in these small communities and help save this paper so I mean the pa- the, the the newspaper and the community get something out of it and the students get at the education part out of it, and I, I think that this is something that not only Grady, but there are other uh, yeah. colleges and, and universities that are doing similar initiatives. I think Kansas is doing it with the, mm-hmm. with, the with the news operation over in, 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 in near Lawrence. It's, right. it's, the, Mid- fin- it's the Missouri yeah. Methodist, right? Absolutely.
2: And yeah. I think, but I think that's important. And uh, you know, here maybe it started as a way to get students experience. Now this is becoming a way to get communities the news.
0: I was going to say you mentioned the Missouri. Method East, and that was going to be one of my questions, is how different is this than what has been going on here since 1908? But the big difference in my mind as I'm thinking about it further is this idea that, you know, the Columbia Missourian first published the day after our school opened. The Missourian was always part of this. This is also the public service mission of not only Providing the news, but a, but but maintaining something that has been there that might otherwise go away, and there's a real historical value in
1: that. No, absolutely. I mean, I think this is a, a part of. I mean, the difference here is that you know this is uh, operated, you know, by the by the school and mm-hmm. by by and parts of it by the university. Uh, Whereas there, the that community, the people in that community, reached out to them, and they're working together. Grady is handling the editorial, the family and others are handling the 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 operations and and the advertising and that part of it. So so I think that that's really important. But it, to go back to a point you were getting at, Kathy, this might be an opportunity to deal with the news desert situation mm-hmm. that is huge in many parts of the country. To be able to utilize uh, journalism programs that are already established, and to go possibly go into those news deserts and provide new news and information on a local level that they otherwise would not get.
2: Yeah, the students get the experience, the communities get the benefit of the news, and I think it's a great it's a great model, and it's a model whose time has come. Yeah. So before we go, I do want to talk
0: about another newspaper that shut down this week, the Kiev. At least closed, according to its website, closed temporarily. Uh, But there seems to be a lot more going on here, Kathy, than just a a shutdown for the time being.
2: Yeah, it looks like an uh, old-fashioned Soviet-style purge. Uh, so the editor of that paper, who is a Missouri honor medalist, uh, is suddenly gone uh, and uh, disappeared. Not really. I mean, I, I think he's still around, but certainly disappeared from the newspaper. And um, As did the rest of the staff. Yeah, they and were this, all
0: summarily fired overnight, yeah,
2: Monday. This looks like classic cronyism, which is really sad. It, it, I think it's happening a lot in the former Soviet republics, where you have uh, strong men who take over the government. Their buddies become the publishers of the paper. And suddenly uh, there are a number of these uh, papers across that region that started out really independent, feisty, a lot of hope after the fall of the Soviet Union. And now gradually um, the forces of corruption really are taking over and they don't want these newspapers, they don't want real reporters there, because when you have real reporters, they they expose corruption and uh, and I think that's what's going on here. I mean,
1: I, and I think you're you're definitely seeing it in the in the old the, the old Soviet Union, but I think you're seeing it in other places around the world as well. When you have corruption and you have strong men and you have military takeovers uh one of the first things they go after is is the is the news media they go after journalists because they don't want what they're doing to be exposed to others around not only within within their own country but they don't want it to be uh be, to be known uh nationally I mean, internationally I'm sorry and and so they have to go in there and they basically Sort of take it over, mm-hmm. but then they put their people in and they're still producing yeah. news, but all of a sudden the news changes. It's the right. official network. Yes, yes. So I yes. think,
2: I mean, we had a great example of that, uh, I think two uh, f- true false film festivals ago, where this terrific documentary about um, a horrible scandal with killed a lot of people um, in uh, Romania, and it was exposed by a sports writer because he was, his publication was the only publication in the entire country that wasn't owned by a crony of the presidents. Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, it's it's something that, you know, we need to continue to look at this because it's happening in many of these places, and what is the news that's gonna be coming out of there? It's gonna be a lot of underground news.
2: And, and what that does is it undermines democracy. Yes. I mean, again, like we've talked about this before, but after the fall of the Berlin Wall, look where we are 30 years later. Yeah. Democracy is... At risk. Yeah.
0: That music means we're pretty much out of time for this week. Thank you for spending the last half hour with us. You can read more about each of these topics on our links blog. That's under both the programs and podcast tabs at KBIA.org. We're also available wherever you get your podcast downloads, including iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Our handle there is at Views on KBIA. These are all great ways to watch and listen to our program again, leave comments, questions, and see what we'll be talking about next week. Our thanks to RJI's Travis McMillan for directing today's show and Aaron Hay for handling the audio. Tim Pilcher composed our theme music. I'm Amy Simons. We'll see you again next week when we're back with more Views of the News.